to Marvel's Voices. I'm your host, Angelique Roche. Today is the very last episode of our season. I know, I know, I'm bummed too, but also pretty excited because every single week of this season has been absolutely incredible. But one of my loves is when I get to take a step back and bring a creator in to talk to another creator. And this time I get to bring, I like to think that uh, she's a veteran. Uh, Her second time hosting Marvel's Voices, Preeti Shiver. Yo, welcome Hi. back. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, veteran. <laughs> I think you I think you have the record on being on Marvel's Voices the most seasons yes. at this point. And I'm so I look, I'm really excited to have you here. I'm really excited because you're going to be talking to a really dope guest. Mm-hmm. Uh Evie's a boy who Preeti Chibber, you both have this intense love for a very specific genre of books that both I, of you now write. <laughs> yeah. I know E.B. actually from our shared work in children's books because we both write for kids and we both care deeply about writing for kids because it's such a obviously formative age and there's so much opportunity there for story and for impacting the readers in a way that feels it feels important and it feels exciting and it gives us an opportunity to do things that I think we wish we'd had as kids. And so it's, yeah, I'm, I'm very excited to have a conversation with her about her Marvel work for kids. Yeah. And well, in writing in this genre, why it says YA is not always just for young adults. You know, the unique aspect of kid lit or YA or upper middle grade or these age levels the thing is coming of age, right? And literally everyone in the world comes of age. And so that's something that you can connect with. That's something that you can participate in and understand as a reader, no matter how old you are, you know, coming to a book. And so that's a fun aspect to get to create, you know, E.B. working on Okoye, my Spider-Man book. I think what's fun there is taking those aspects that we love about writing in other pieces of the age level and bringing it to characters that there is this deep love for. I love it. I love it. All right. Well, I am not going to take up too much more of your time because I know there are so many things you want to dive into because we're going to be talking about her work, her background. E.B. is Haitian American. She immigrated to the United States, but really grew up in New York. And so I'm really excited to dig into her background and your background and Okoye and just Thank you so much for taking the reins this week. Very, very thrilled to do it. Let's uh, get to it. Evie, I'm so, so excited to be talking to you. Likewise. Likewise. Hi. (laughs) Hi. You're recording in a unique place. Can you you tell me what's happening? Yeah. So, you know, I'm a mom of three. I have a minivan. I have three teens and it really comes in handy when you have to drive all up and down the east coast for college drop-offs so that's what I've been doing but however I have a teenage son at home and he's like hemming and hawing as to whether or not he should be on the football team so I gotta get this packet filled out (laughs) for a medical forms I live in New Jersey but our family doctor is in Brooklyn so I'm actually in Brooklyn where Okoye to the people is set yes I am quite in the neighborhood of Brownsville. I am in Crown Heights, Brooklyn. 
and I have the windows up. It's hot. (laughs) And it's noisy outside. So this is where we are. The timing didn't quite, you know, I could have been home in my lovely uh, suburban home doing this interview. But this is appropriate because Akoya to the People is about gentrification in Brooklyn. And why not do it in my fancy minivan on the corner? No, it's perfect. (laughs) You know, I want to talk about your origin story. I want to know, you know, what made you fall in love with being like a storyteller and with story? You know, this is not the first time I'm being asked this, of course. And if you had asked me five years ago, I'd have one answer. A year ago, I'd have another answer. But right now, I've been like really quiet online and doing a lot of introspection. I have like social media and American entertainment industry fatigue, right? I realize like I'm how plugged in we are to virtual reality and that virtual reality is also entertainment. And I was thinking about it. How is it? Why am I doing this? I could have been a teacher and be interacting with people on a daily basis. I could have been a, you know, a grocery store clerk and been less like cerebral and lonely at times. But I realized I grew up on TV. This is why I'm a writer. I was watching TV a lot. I grew (laughs) up on Norman Lear sitcom reruns. I stayed in the house because my mother was an immigrant and she was afraid of outside for me. Immigrants are afraid of outside. (laughs) You you know what I'm talking about. (laughs) So I was in the house and I grew up in Bushwick, another neighborhood that is um, has been gentrified. It's not the Bushwick that we know now. And I'd have to walk to school and come home, latchkey kid, the key on the string, open a door. And so I'm supposed to do my homework. But of course, the TV is my babysitter. So from probably the age of five up until now, I don't think we talk about TV addicts becoming storytellers. I grew up on stories and people think I was like, I had my head behind a book. No, I started wearing glasses at eight years old because me and the TV, you know, you can't see me, but like my face (laughs) was to the TV screen. And I absorbed American culture that way through sitcoms. So this is where I'm at right now. This is the answer I'm giving right now. I am a storyteller because I was a, Haitian immigrant TV addict as a kid. And this is how I made sense of the world. And this is still how I'm making sense of the world. And sci-fi, sci-fi was a huge thing in the Mm -hmm. 80s. And science fiction made sense to me, mostly because for most of my childhood, I had a card with my name and my picture on it that said resident alien. And I took that to be literal alien. I mean, and I was fascinated <laughs> with the idea of alien, you know, right? Yes. That makes sense. So that's a little bit of, you know, it's not like deep or anything like that. But right now I'm realizing like, oh, snap, I watched a whole lot of TV. And now I'm just like, I need like, like a TV addicts anonymous or something because I cannot understand the world outside of the entertainment industry and what's been fed to us. You say that that it's not like a deep answer, but I think there's actually a lot of, there is a lot of depth there because one, TV in the 90s is a very different prospect than TV now. The stories that were being told, the way they were being told, the way we were getting them, which was not how we get them now. Then it was, you're going to get what you get, what's playing on television at the time that you were sitting in front of the television. It's, 
interrupted by commercials. It's it's a different form of ingesting story, which I think can also impact you in different ways as a storyteller. So, you know, you mentioned Norman Lear, but what were some stories when you think about the stories of your youth and you think about the things that really affected you as a writer today, are there ones that come to mind immediately? Or is it the American television? Is it what comes to mind? Because mine, for me, as a child of Indian immigrants, I'll think of all the American TV I experienced, but also on the other side of that is like the Bollywood movies and the like Indian comics sitting in my house. Like, it's this weird mishmash. So how does that work for you of pulling all these different pieces? And what are some stories you think of when you're thinking about story? The most intriguing for me, and my earliest memory of watching it was at age nine, The Twilight Zone. Mm. I think that was the very beginning of streaming and binge watching because on New Year's Day and on Independence Day, July 4th, they had back-to-back episodes, like for 24 hours or whenever like the fizz came on. And I remember specifically because the summertime in my neighborhood in Brooklyn was just rowdy and loud. And in front of the TV was my safe place. Mm -hmm. And um, the black and white, eerie kind of cerebral, weird things that were going on were like, whoa, is this what this country is about? It made all the sense to me. And when I was a little girl, there was a huge TV series, two, two big ones that I remember, Shaka Zulu. Shaka Zulu was a made-for-TV event, and it was an African warrior, right? And this was my first introduction to like, ooh, Africa. And the other one was V. It was a science fiction phenomena that happened. I'm going to add another one. It was, this was a movie, and we didn't see it until it came on VHS, Wes Craven's the Serpent and the Rainbow, and this was the first time I saw Haiti on the screen oh, wow. outside the news. Terrible representation. <laughs> and one word, voodoo, right? Every negative connotation that you can think of was in Wes Craven's Serpent and the Rainbow. In hindsight, in hindsight, it was terrible. Me at 12 was like, holy, is that what I come from? Right? Yep. I'm like, I don't want anything to do with that. Are you Haitian? Nope, absolutely not. Absolutely not. It's no joke. It's no joke what these things can do. Right. For a long time, it was not popular to be Haitian. It was just embarrassing at the time because you believed it to be real. You know, Mm. it's a movie. It's Wes Craven, Nightmare on L Street guy. He knows what he's talking about. And even my family were like, yep, that's how it is, when that's not true. (laughs) It was kind of internalized self-hatred. Like, even as an adult, you can't take in what's being said about your own culture without knowledge of your own self. So, yeah, Wes Craven's Serpent and the Rainbow did a number on me, and I am working on that. I'm going to subvert that whole thing (laughs) single-handedly. I was just going to ask, you know, that... That is such a, I think, a real story that a lot of people go through because of the way, especially when you come from cultures that are not well, that were not well known and are not well known in the countries our parents immigrated to. You deal with the representation being so often incorrect and harmful and trying to find your way through to the actual culture and a love for it. Were you able to do that? 
maybe not at 12, but like as you started growing up, like how did you find your way to becoming the person who is like, I'm going to subvert this. I'm going to fix this. Like, how did you find your way there? I had to experience it because, and there's something to be said about how do you find the truth in your culture when there's no correct representation in the media, right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes you can't go reading everything because it's still misrepresentation. And even your own family is like, we don't talk about the voodoo. You know, we don't. (laughs) Because a lot of Haitians are very Christian. Mm -hmm. I grew up very Catholic. And it's something where you kind of like, when you're an immigrant and you don't hold on to your culture, you kind of turn your nose up at the old country or those backwards kind of things. Also for me, it wasn't until college where I actually experienced my first voodoo ceremony. I listened to practitioners. I befriended practitioners and became a practitioner myself to this day. And it changed my whole aesthetic. And this is when I wanted to write. I was writing fantasy 20 years ago not because it was, there were already books out there, but because I wanted to write the world that I was experiencing. And I didn't know it to be magical realism, but it was essentially magical realism simply because of the mythology in Haitian Vodou and other African and world mythology too. I even know, I, I learned Hindu mythology I learned like ancient Egyptian mythology, Roman, Greek, Haitian Vodou, West African, which is Yoruba mythology. I was really into mythology like 20, 25 years ago, so much so that I wanted to get a PhD in mythological studies. So I loved that space. And because I loved that space, I was writing within that space in 2001. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, and mind you, I was very young. I was like in my late teens, but still trying to write that when none of that already existed. But it did because I was reading Octavia Butler's Wild Seed. Oh, right. Oh, <laughs> I'm clutching my heart because I love I love Octavia Butler. So before Okoye to the People, Star Child, a biographical constellation of Octavia Butler came out. Mm-hmm. And Okoye to the People coming out about two, three months after that was right in line with the kind of writer I first was. I would go to Forbidden Planet in New York City (laughs) in college. I was like, I didn't love comic books, but I loved the worlds that some of them created, the sort of magical otherworldly spaces that they created. Well, yeah, this was my next question for you, is talking about your love of mythology and, and looking at something like Marvel Comics, which has all this wonderful modern-day mythology coming out with their long-running stories. How did you first get introduced to Marvel? So I wasn't picking up these stories, so this is me. I had a lot of boyfriends, right? And And I loved artsy nerds were my jam. And they were the ones who took me to Forbidden Planet. (laughs) Listen... However you got there, you got there. there. (laughs) I was into spoken word poetry, but it wasn't the kind of poetry that you hear now. The spoken word poetry I was into were kind of like the intergalactic kind of just like, I am not from here. I'm from Saturn and it's rings or something. You could see it in my writing (laughs) that (laughs) I came from like the really weird, nerdy black kids who were writing about poetry 
and space travel. And we were alternative Black kids. And the guys I dated were just like that. And they were into the comics. So I was coming of age when Matrix came out, the first Matrix. Mm -hmm. You could not tell us. Like, we're like, oh, wow, this is the Matrix. Everything was the Matrix, right? I did not finish college because it was the Matrix. Some of us didn't get (laughs) real jobs because it's the Matrix. And we thought with Y2K... It was it. We were like, we're breaking out of the matrix. We're going into a whole nother, like, you know, century. It's time to do what we want, right? We were talking about, like, you know, planning for doomsday. And to be of a certain age at that time, we're leaving it all. We're getting, stepping out of the matrix. So saying all that to say that gets me into science fiction. Mm -hmm. And it was in 2000 that Octavia Butler won the Nebula for Parable of the Talents. And Parable of Sower had come out in 1998. So part of all of that was why a lot of my boyfriends were reading the comic books and going to Fibberton, trying to find, like, what's next? What's the roadmap? What mm-hmm. are we going to do? Where's Wakanda? There was something there, you know? It was like, what's next for us? And comic books and those alternative worlds provided some sort of creative and intellectual roadmap as to what will be happening next. Mm -hmm. I love it because I feel like I have a great sense of where Okoye to the People fits in some of these comic storytellings. But before we kind of really dive into the book, I want to know more about what it is about writing for children that excites you and and where that love comes from. So, you know, I was like in early college years trying to submit my stuff for publication and it wasn't the industry that it is now. I was trying to sell something to one Black editor through one Black agent and that would have been my entry in. Mm -hmm. So I was writing for children only because I got a lot of pushback from magical storytelling in workshops with adults. Mm. I was taking a workshop in in New York City and they wanted to be serious writers. You know, when writers saying, I'm aiming for the Pulitzer or the National Book Award, this sort of highbrow literary stuff. Mm -hmm. And I remember writing a story about a teenage girl who gives birth to a dinosaur as a way to like bring humanity back to its roots or something, right? (laughs) Making these big statements through like weird storytelling. Yeah. And I got that from Butler. I attended Clarion West and Clarion West prepares you for short story writing. And I got short stories published. My first short story was published in 2004 in Dark Matter Reading to Bones, the first anthology that featured African-American speculative fiction. Mm -hmm. And my story was about a nanny, a vampire nanny who's homeless and needed the souls of baby to like replenish her body. Strange. It doesn't quite work in a literary, highbrow literary workshop. And I realized Like there was a whole bunch of magical storytelling happening in the kid lit space. Yeah. And we're talking 2006 started out in the the fairy era. Oh, yeah. That was big. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. You just brought me back. (laughs) How many fairy and angels? Angels were very big, too. Fallen angels. Fallen angels and fairies. 
Wow. That was my way in. I'm like, why aren't there any black fairies? <laughs> and I wrote my first novel was middle grade. And it was about a group of black fairies that live in the New York City subway system. And they were called Afrofarians. Don't laugh. I love it. You know? <laughs> I love it. I remember it somehow got to an editor at a certain house. And they said there's something like this already. What? And it wasn't within the context of we have our Black Fairy book. You know who that? what that other book was? It was Suzanne Collins' Rever and the Overlanders. I kid you not. What? I kid you not. I got compared <laughs> to Suzanne Collins. This is before the Hunger Games. But she had a group of, I don't remember what they were, but underground subway system. I had underground subway system. I'm like, oh, Gotta toss that away. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I moved on to YA. And I was writing that kind of stuff, not because it was in the industry, but because of like two people who were writing that. It was Nalo Hopkinson. She had a book called Brown Girl in the Ring. And Nettie Akor 4, who had Zara the Winston. Mm -hmm. There were literally like five people writing that stuff. And I wanted to be like them. It wasn't a movement. It wasn't like a trend at all. It was like, I want to do with Haitian girls what Nettie is doing. And I don't know how her book was selling. I didn't care. I knew that I could do what they do. If they got in, I could get in. And lo and behold, 20 years, this, we're here now, which is wonderful. But I think it's important to acknowledge that there wasn't this sea change in 2004 and 2005. There were one or two, and their books have since been like, you know, we tend to forget like those lone souls, those lone yeah. <laughs> souls. It is so important to be with the tide sometimes, you know? where I remember someone asking me, do you want to be ahead of the time or a writer of your time? Yeah. There are two, I mean, there's space for both of them, but there are very different things that come of being one or the other. Right. I think. Right, <laughs> right, right. I don't remember what your original question was, but this is how we end up. <laughs> what do you love about writing for kids? That you can be weird. Yes. So in 2011, I, I wanted to go back to school because my youngest child started kindergarten. And I'm like, it's time. I want to immerse myself. And I'm seeing some of my friends get published. But I've gotten so many rejections mm -hmm. that this is close or we don't know what to do with this. And I'm thinking it's my writing or let me go in the academic space. So I end up at VCFA Writing for Children program in 2012. And I'm like, what's wrong with what I'm doing? You know, what is going on here? And there was no like examples for what it is that I was trying to do in 2012 mm -hmm. until Shadow Shaper came out by right. Jose Older. Yes. So I'm two years in the Writing for Children program. I got an agent. I'm writing my weird stories, but she didn't send them out. And an opportunity came. American Street is with a packager alloy. And that opportunity came. And I thought like, okay, if I don't do this, they're going to get somebody else to do that who's not Haitian. And I did it. I ran with it. I poured my heart and soul into it. And I ended up in a very different trajectory than I thought I would be because of so many setbacks and timing. 
I'm wondering if I had waited for maybe a three years <laughs> and jumped on the fantasy bandwagon and be like, hey, <laughs> I had this Haitian story sitting here <laughs> um, versus just like, I've been doing this too long. Just whatever you got, I'll take it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> no, Totally. After a certain point, you're like, I can do it. Mm -hmm. It's not the thing I might have wanted to do, but I know I can do the thing you're looking for. Right. And that'll happen. Right. Like it'll rather than the thing I might want to do, but I'm risking a little bit more. But then you get into the position where you're like, well, now I can do it. Right. Now I get to write the things I want to write. So what was that like? yet. Not quite yet. So what is that? How? What do you mean by that? That's yeah, let's let's dig into it. Well, the contracts, right? (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yes. It takes two or three years for a book to come out. True. I decided to write for Marvel in 2018. When that opportunity came, I'm like, heck yeah. What? Okoye, of course. And, you know, Black Panther had come out the February of that year. Mm-hmm. And I automatically understood the connection between the Dora Milaje and the the warrior women of the kingdom of Dahomey, which is what the woman king is all about. Yes. And Haitian culture has strong ties to the Dahomey and Benin region. I did know about the Dora Milaje. Really excited about it. Of course, I'm doing this. However, pandemic happened and the writing of it was harder. Yes. Because I'm like, womp, womp, womp. You know? It was hard to be fun and creative for for a long time. Yes. So in that sense, right where I feel like I'm ready to write what I want, I have to stick to the Marvel Universe rules. (laughs) (laughs) Did you find, though, so a very similar parallel story, I think, happening with what what you went through. I signed up to write the Spider-Man trilogy in like October 2019, I think, and was like super gung-ho about it. And then the pandemic hit and then the book came out while we're still sort of in it. But with all these rules, you know, people ask all the time, like, what's it like when you're sort of writing these stories that don't necessarily belong to you? And for me, it was like pulling in what I could from within their sandbox, but still using, you know, little pieces of my history and my culture and putting it into this story. So did you have an opportunity to do that? You know, there is this long history of very like incredible Haitian warriors. Were you pulling from some of that? You said, you know, the background, there is this connection between these things when you were writing this book. So yes and no, because I made it, I put the Dora Milaje in Brooklyn, New York. Yep. (laughs) Putting her in Brooklyn, New York, some of the Wakanda-isms are not Mm -hmm. more. So I learned a lot while writing this. I learned a lot about the kind of writer that I am and the biases that I have about my own culture, right? And that's the beauty of what Marvel has created with Wakanda in that Wakanda is not magical. Right. (laughs) It is scientific. I'm like, oh, Ooh, I did say I like science fiction, right? <laughs> so in writing Okoye, it was a lot of like, you know, my editors just like, no, the, you know, the vibranium is not magic. It's science. <laughs> so we tend to think of like Africans and like indigenous people 
anything that is not European as like magical, but we don't think like Wakanda forced us to be like scientific, you know? And it's a fish out of water story because she's coming from Wakanda and she's like dropped right in the middle of Brooklyn or she finds herself in Brooklyn with all this noise. So, well, very, very quickly, actually, for people who have not yet read the book, can you just set it up very quickly for us? Like, who are we following? What is she doing? So we are following Okoye in her late teens. King T'Chaka comes to New York on a humanitarian mission, and he is accompanied by Captain Aneka and Okoye. And they have to disguise themselves. Are they supermodels? Are they students? They're, they don't quite get it right. You know, they keep forgetting. <laughs> but Okoye ventures out on her own because she's young and she's feeling herself and comes into the Brownsville neighborhood where kids are kind of setting things on fire. And I borrowed that from Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower. And my connection to New York City is when it was at its worst. And that Mm. is the crack epidemic and the burning of certain neighborhoods. And I brought that into it. Like young readers may not make that connection, but it is a little bit dystopian in that sense. You know, that I shared that idea with the editors. It's like, it's very Marvel run with it. Mm -hmm. And there is a pill that is being pushed into the community that forces these kids to destroy their communities. And Okoye sees that. She's like, do I help? You know, (laughs) Mm -hmm. or do I mind my business? Because Wakanda is secret and they don't know our powers. So the idea is that what happens when you have somewhere like Wakanda and she starts to see people who look like her, kids who look like her, suffering to some extent Mm -hmm. can't extend whatever resources Wakanda has to these communities. And the Brownsville is a neighborhood in Brooklyn, like that is in the margins. And here is one example of like King, why can't we help? And he's like, no. So, you know, hijinks, not quite hijinks (laughs) ensued. (laughs) And this was very hard to write because She is a warrior and she had to be active. And I am not. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) It is it is very difficult. Something that is really, I think, fun about working in the Marvel Universe and writing books based in, in the Marvel Comics verse is picking and choosing what other characters you want your character to play with. So, you know, you have Captain Amika, you have Ao. Like, how did that work? Like when you were deciding what to pull in to a prose novel from this great world of comics. So, you know, the Dora Milaje, they're not, they don't have a big universe, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of things I could not do because some of the ideas that I have belong to MCU and Brian Coogler. Yeah, when you you have things, it is a very large world for sure. There's so many different avenues to tell these stories and there's so much desire for more story for some of these characters you know like like you said Okoye coming out of Black Panther I think just exploded the character and that's why we get to have this wonderful book from you giving us insight I think to a piece of her story that we haven't seen and we haven't known and that we get to experience her being dropped into the middle of Brooklyn it it makes me think of Ronald Smith's middle grade uh, the Young Prince series which is 
excellent. And it's T'Challa going through something similar of like being sent to America and how he's experiencing that as a very, as a young prince. But Okoye, of course, is a little bit older. We get to deal with these slightly different themes that are important to you. And so what has been really exciting for you about having this book come out into the world? I think it is, it fits right in with my other books. It's Kids in a Hood, you know, the same way we had Kids in a Hood in, in Detroit, in American Street, and Pride, and Gentrification. And so for me, it lets readers know, this is what I care about. If I were to write a superhero story, here is where I would put my superhero. And she is not in Wakanda. I'm like, you take like this highly technologically advanced country and their warrior women. How could we use her resources and have young people in direct conflict with this warrior? Here, there are some like feisty girls and their community organizer coming head to head with like a warrior princess and what sort of conversations they have. So this is like, you know, I had to pull back on like the philosophical discussions and make them fight. And that was hard. (laughs) (laughs) What if they just had a conversation? (laughs) Easy, right? (laughs) You know, let's just cut the prose and just make it. Just dialogue. Just dialogue. (laughs) Whole book. (laughs) No fighting. (laughs) But no, that's not how it happened. So this was, it was hard. And I like that she was younger and that I got to center teens, but it was part of my wheelhouse in terms of the setting, but not part of the wheelhouse in terms of like the action packed kind of just like moving the story along. So I learned a lot in terms of just like what happens next, what happens next, right? Did you yeah things like that too? Yeah, I think it is a unique proposition of the kind of storytelling when you have characters like Okoye or like Spider-Man who have specific things they need to accomplish <laughs> as we're writing. I am very curious. You said that you're excited that this book is for teens. What are some things you're hoping that younger readers will pick up out of this book? I think it's, I wish that there was, I had a, you know, just an idea of just taking a whole bunch of copies and bringing it to a high school in Brownsville to say like, look, your neighborhood is represented Mm -hmm. in the Marvel universe. And I haven't had the opportunity to do that, but you know, whoever picks up the book, that's great. But I think the teens in Brownsville or neighborhood like Brownsville needs to see this book. And when I was touring, I was thinking about that. There was no bookstore in Brownsville. You know, like (laughs) there is no Barnes and Nobles. For them to actually go to a bookstore, they'd have to take a bus and a train to downtown Brooklyn. But these are places where I know kids would read if they knew that these books existed. And a lot of the schools in these neighborhoods are Title I schools and a lot of the teachers, I know my husband's a teacher in a, a Title I school, just don't have the bandwidth to think about bringing an author. Yeah. And yeah, that is my hope. You know, this book is still out there. There's still an opportunity to do that. But I, I just want certain kids to see their neighborhood, their way of life, the things that they're contending with in a book. No, that's awesome. You know, the book's been out now for a few months have you heard from young readers? So this is where, you know, I want to talk to you about like, so right now 
I'm having like social media fatigue. I am not tired of writing. I am tired of promoting. And the promotion part of it is like, it's one-sided, it feels. Like your output, output, output. And you don't know the impact you're making other than Mm -hmm. a like or a viral tweet or something like that. And after the pandemic of just living online for so long, it starts to feel unreal to me. I know the other side of it where my husband's a teacher and he cannot be online during the day, you know, and he's not trying to go online after work. He's like zoned out. He's decompressing. And the kids are not, you know, they're not following authors, you know. So how do they get to know these books without like me doing a song and dance, right? And I don't know in terms of what school and library marketing think of just like getting books to Title I schools. I could reach out to a few teachers, but I know that they are so tired post-pandemic. So there are a lot of obstacles, but I realized the best use of my time is to keep writing books. And some way, somehow I get to a title one school and, you know, for one book or other and be like, I also wrote this book. (laughs) (laughs) You know about this. So I realized like the movement, movement in terms of just like getting to certain spaces that I want to be in is about having like a body of work, you know, a wagon of books, (laughs) uh, options to have with you when you go to these spaces. Yeah, yeah. I think that's all we can do is write the book. For me, it's always being loud about the things I love. And if the things I love happen to be the thing that I'm writing at that point, it's just being loud about it until it stops being fun. And like the minute it stops being fun, you don't do it anymore. So, but there are, I hope, ways for, and and I think there are ways for kids who need this book to be able to find it and pick it up because it is so striking. It is so exciting that there is an Okoye book with your name on the cover, a kid walking through a bookstore or a kid seeing a tweet about it or a kid overhearing a librarian talk about it is a point of excitement and a point of accessibility. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I have to remind myself of that too, that it doesn't have to be like a one-woman show of getting the no. book out. Yeah. What's wonderful, I think, about that I have to remind myself because it can be exhausting and it can be isolating, um, especially over the last three years of all of us who write kids' books and couldn't go to schools. I think I had like four books come out over the pandemic. And there was just like no point at which you can connect directly with the reader. But being in kids' books is a position of people – who genuinely care about reading and genuinely care about getting the right books into the hands of the kids who need them. And so there are people who are doing that work. It's teachers, it's librarians. They care so deeply about filling their shelves with a book for every kid who comes into their building. And I just constantly remind myself of that, of these like incredibly passionate people across the country who do this work because they care about reading right. and because they care about kids reading. Yeah, yeah. I think that is so good to remember. And thank you for reminding me of that because <laughs> you don't know. Thank you so much for talking to me about writing and Okoye to the People, which is so wonderful. And if you haven't read it, you should go pick it up right now because it is a wonderful, wonderful book. Preeti, this was really, really wonderful. Lots of fun.
So I am pretty sure that you, I, Isabel, our producer, and everyone who just listened to this podcast are now best friends with Evie's a boy because that was pretty amazing. <laughs> yep, I agree. <laughs> that conversation just truly was a delight. Like I, I kind of lost track of time. Yeah, that was nice because it was one, I, I laughed a lot, which I always love a conversation where I get to laugh a lot. And it was fun to talk to another person who's in the same like there were so many parallels between her experience writing Okoye to the people and my experience writing Spider-Man Social Dilemma and so that was nice and and getting to sort of commiserate of our timing and being excited about this thing and maybe not getting to celebrate it how we wanted to and, and things like that was it's always nice when you can have that moment with another writer who truly understands what you're experiencing. This was a really fun one. This was a really engaging, fun conversation, I thought. I am I always enjoy being here. <laughs> you know, last time is Saladin. It was just a delight being able to, to hear the conversation and your questions and your thoughtfulness. And I always love having you on Marvel's Voices. And I'm so grateful. Before we go, though... You have been a busy with a lot of things coming up. Mm-hmm. So, of course, Spider-Man Social Dilemma came out this summer. It is the first book in an original Peter Parker trilogy, which is very, very exciting. And I love it a whole lot. And I think people like it. So pick it up if you like Peter Parker stories. He's teenager. Some, like, awkward rom-com stuff happening. Some hijinks, real hijinks ensuing. And then the third Avengers Assembly book came out, like, two weeks ago. X- the letter X, change students 101. Guess where they're going? <laughs> Is it in upstate New York? <laughs> they're definitely taking a train to get there. <laughs> Yo, I'm so excited, man. It's just been an absolute delight and pleasure, one, to be your friend, but to just see all the cool stuff that you've been doing. Aw, thanks, bud. Thanks again to Evie for coming on the show, and of course to Preeti for coming back back again for her second time guest hosting. And a reminder, Evie's book, Okoye to the People, is out right now. You can find it wherever you get your books. To wrap up our very last episode of the season, I have a couple more folks to introduce you to. These two artists created the art for Walmart's exclusive Marvel's Voices Artist Capsule Collection. The collection spotlights the work, contributions, and lived experiences of Marvel creators and fans of color, as well as products from the Black Panther Legacy Program. Created by artists Nardstar and Damian Scott, the new capsule collection features Walmart-exclusive Funko collectibles with additional exclusives coming later this year. So first up, Damian Scott. My name is Damian Scott. I'm a comic book artist and illustrator for Marvel Comics. I basically grew up in Brooklyn, New York. I've traveled a lot, you know, Philadelphia, Tokyo, but for the most part, I'm based in Brooklyn. My career as an artist began, I think, when I was eight years old. You know, that's when I really started drawing. I don't know. I remember my mom buying me a coloring book and trying to trace images out of the coloring book and whatnot. I started really taking it seriously as like, yes, this is what I want to do with the rest of my life when I was 17. And pretty much after that, decided to go to art school and pursue this life, this dream.
My style is, I don't know, it's like an amalgamation. It's like a mix of a lot of different things. You know, like, of course, I love traditional comic books, but I also love fine art. I love poster art. I love a lot of different artists from Egon Shield to, you know, the big guns like Picasso and Van Gogh. So, you know, I think my style is a fusion of all that. But of course, I'm from Brooklyn, grew up in Brooklyn through the 80s. So, you know, it's got to be influenced by graffiti, too. You know, so I think that kind of sums it up a little traditional, a little graffiti. That's what I do. This Black Panther Wakanda Forever collaboration came together. You know, they reached out to me and, you know, they asked me to contribute basically myself to what they were doing already within the Black Panther universe. A lot of the work I did will be used to create anything related to the movie that's going to be sold when it comes to like mugs, knapsacks, you know, t-shirts, limited amount of toys and blankets, a little bit of everything. Stylistically, one of the things I wanted to do with this is basically to show a fairly wide variety of things that I could do. Like I'm into apparel design. I do a lot of work with t-shirt graphics and whatnot. So I wanted to give them stuff that was definitely more geared to like fashion and you know apparel but then also give them like fun stuff for the toys or whatever other merch they were planning to make and i would say wow one of them is kind of like a crushed black panther piece it's just like a style i've been working in where i just like crush as many characters together as possible with no negative space another one is more influenced by i would say like anime big head you know vinyl toy art and another one is just more like your traditional what I do for Marvel. It's like just more like a poster illustration. So it's like a fair mix of this, that, and this. I actually just recently came back from a family reunion in, in Jamaica. I grew up in Brooklyn, but I was born in Jamaica. And it was amazing to see like two, three, four hundred members of my family get together. And it kind of reminded me of that Black Panther scene where they're up on the the waterfall and just seeing that kind of community and that kind of thing come together was an amazing experience. And I hope to keep this character and its spirits in my work for a long time to come. I love the character. I've loved what is done for African-Americans in the comic book community and in the country as a whole. So to be a part of that is just always amazing. And now, here's South African artist, Nardstar. My name is Nardstar. My artist's name is Nardstar. And I'm from Cape Town, South Africa. I got into art as a child, but I think as kids, it's natural for us to be creative. And throughout my childhood, I would just like to draw and create and make things without like putting too much thought into actually becoming an artist. When I was older and finishing high school and deciding what I'm going to do for my career, I just kind of started following a path towards my creative side. I would describe my style as like, I think the easiest way to describe it is visually, like it's very bold, bright colors, a lot of like shapes. It's kind of like Jenga, <laughs> trying to piece all these like little blocks of shapes together and finding a way to make them balance. And then 
that's my style. And then obviously I have my subject matter, which is mostly at the moment focuses on like local fauna and flora that's indigenous to South Africa and Cape Town. And then also celebrating women of color because it's an expression of my own experience. I think what has most influenced my work is growing up as an artist in a graffiti context. So I think that is a main influence. And then the other influence would be just my experience as someone living in Cape Town. I draw a lot from that in my work. For the Walmart collaboration, it's one of those emails that you get where you just like, Especially for me, being down here in South Africa, I was just like, hey, this is kind of crazy, you know. My designs are going to be on merchandise for the Black Panther Legacy Project. So it's kind of celebrating the story of the characters in the Black Panther movie. Some of the merchandise that you'll be able to see with my work on it will be t-shirts with the Black Panther lettering in kind of a graffiti style. There's also track suits like hoodies and track pants with some with the lettering on and also some with the Black Panther mask on it. I drew inspiration for this project from merging subject matter that I like to focus on and identifying those things in the movie. So like celebrating local and like South African and African heritage as well as the stereotypes of what a woman is supposed to be is like challenged a lot. The main army in Wakanda is like the all-female warrior army. So those are the things that I leaned into. Okay, y'all, that is it for this season of Marvel's Voices. I hope you had as much of a blast as I did traveling around the world to meet all of these incredible Marvel creators. And I don't know if you were counting, but we hit five continents. And sure, we missed Australia and Antarctica. But honestly, we are out here recruiting good penguin artists and colorists. And it is only a matter of days. Anyway, y'all, I'm going to stop telling bad jokes. The good news is I won't be gone for long. In the next few weeks, we're going to be launching the brand new season of Women of Marvel with my two phenomenal co-hosts, Ellie Pyle and Judy Stevens. So make sure you're following that feed so you can catch all the new episodes when they're out. And we'll see you soon. Marvel's Voices is produced by Isabel Robertson, Cara McGurk-Allison, and me, Angelique Rocher. Our senior manager of audio production and development is Brad Barton. Our production manager is Larissa Rosen. And our executive producer is Jill Duboff. Our theme music was composed and performed by Kamau Wainaina. <laughs>